if you think of that curfew for improving your sleep, but also that curfew in terms of skills that are being lost, so the ability to sit down and have a proper conversation, mm-hmm. how was your day, what happened, you're gaining that back now by taking out the TV and the phone. You're also gaining the skill of meditation, maybe, and the benefits of that in terms yeah. of mental clarity and performance. Or maybe you're reading a book. You're now bringing back the skill of being able to in- get in depth in the topic and actually concentrate and improve yeah. your mind as opposed to just scrolling, scrolling flicking yeah. back and forth. So obviously there's the sleep benefits, but also your no, there's a life benefit. The, the, your li- you're kind of practicing these life skills that TV and phones get yeah. in the way of. Yeah, absolutely. Hello and welcome to episode number 20 of For Fit's Sake, the podcast brought to you by FS Gym. This week, myself and Rudds are joined by Alan Flanagan. Alan, I'm going to go with the title, The Nutritional Advocate. Yeah. As it's the easiest way to find you if people are looking for you. Yeah. Um, Alan, bit on your background, a solicitor and a nutritionist. Uh, and also you founded Align Health as an online coaching practice. Yeah, I did. Uh, I'm actually moving away from that now um, to a kind of a different direction now that I've kind of things in nutrition have crystallized for me a bit more and I'm much more interested now in kind of an academic route so as opposed to the kind of working one-on-one with people yeah so um really did enjoy that period for the for the couple of years that I was doing that with through Align Health but kind of ready to move on to to some other kind of challenges in nutrition and yeah. we'll definitely flesh that out as the episode goes on but a bit more on your background as well you're also a competitive power lifter i'm trying to figure yep. out how you fit in time to do all of this i've only listed three lines so far i don't know <laughs> yeah. where there's time in the well, day you need, i think i think it's important to have something in your life physical training wise um rugby was that for me for years but i always loved the strength training side of it stop playing and just got bored and found everyone else was kind of turning to either CrossFit or triathlons, neither of which appealed to me particularly. And I just kind of thought, well, what am I good at? <laughs> Picking heavy things up. So, <laughs> so, so we'll try this. Very good. And then finally, before we move on to roads for the kind of key areas we're going to touch on the podcast, I went just doing a bit of research on you. I found contributing articles to a ton of websites that kind of I would regularly read. Most of our staff would get to, we'd regularly refer a lot of our clients to, for example, Lane Norton, yeah, Boyle Lane, those yeah. articles. Um, the if it fits your macros.com, there's a few articles mm-hmm. there. Um, what, what's the kind of one thing that those kind of people come to you looking for in terms of your contribution? I think, and particularly with, with, with Lane's website, which is great because it's a very, very well educated, sciencey audience. Um, and I take kind of pride in my ability to really go into the literature on a given topic, um, tease out the nuances. Everything in nutrition science is about nuances. There's no black and white answers. Um, you know, and, and, and look at things, you know, from, from a particular analytic perspective. And I, I think that's ultimately certainly why I've, I've got a lot of enjoyment out of writing for, for biolane.com because, you can write at a level and go into a level of detail with the science that the readers seem to really appreciate. And that he regularly gets, I follow him on Instagram and Twitter and stuff, he seems to be constantly getting in bro science fights versus guys where they're kind of trying to call him out on uh, yeah. like it's, it's, it's absolute fact and like you said, well deliberated uh, going through the research and the literature versus uh, that won't work I read in bodybuilding.com yeah, or whatever it is exactly. it's a fairly interesting, um, I'd imagine it's a great platform to work with um, so that's kind of roughly Alan's background. Rudds is going to now run us through the three key things we're going to get from the podcast for our listeners. So the three key things we'd love to touch on is um, circadian rhythm and sleep, mm. the truth about saturated fats and dairy myths, yeah. 
Um, just in terms of what you're saying about there's no black and white and the nuances, we'd love to hear about some of, and discuss some of more of those nuances. So the first one is uh, sleep. One of the things I talk to a lot of my clients about is sleep being the most one of the most powerful recovery tools mm-hmm. available. Yeah, and it's free. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you could talk to us a little bit about circadian rhythms and their importance to health and performance, yeah, absolutely. So sleep is is just one component of our overall circadian rhythms, and what those rhythms are are inbuilt internal rhythms in things like your body temperature your maximal power output um but also your digestion your ability to absorb and assimilate the nutrients that you eat and essentially everything that we have every process that we have waking up in the morning when we get sleepy in the evening are controlled by by rhythms um in various processes the thing is in humans those rhythms are actually a little longer than our 24-hour day is So what we need is we need external cues that help us to synchronize those rhythms to the day and the, and the night phase. So we can anticipate those changes in the environment. And so the most primary driver of those, um, cues is, is light, is light exposure. So when we have daytime light exposure, we have certain frequencies and intensities of light, um, which corresponds basically to the color of a blue sky and that basically communicates to the brain that it's daytime and that communicates then downstream to everything from your neuromuscular function to your digestive system to be able to do certain things at that point in time and then the opposite happens when we lose that light cue um we'll have an increase in a hormone called melatonin and that's the body really shifting at that point to preparing for sleep we're moving from eating and digesting to resting and fasting and we're moving into that sleep period um when and, and this is an important concept in terms of the cues that help us synchronize to our environment where light is the most important cue your meal timing is probably the second most important cue and the two of them align together to give us a synchronization with our day and night. The issue in modern society is first, our light cues are all over the place, particularly in our climates in the winter. People might be getting up in the morning. It's pitch black outside. They go to work in the car. They don't really get any sort of exposure that tells them internally it's daytime. Yeah. And then they come home in the evening. They put on a 60 inch plasma. They stare at their phone whatsapping people right up until the minute they go to bed that's basically communicating through the the kind of light that electronic devices emit that it's daytime but they're then going to sleep they're waking up in the morning they're knackered they're going through this process again and the other thing that extended um evening illumination is created whether it's just the lighting in our house or or staying up with devices is that people are eating later into their biological night and all of the research coming out in this area now is showing that that's quite profoundly negative in its effects. And you don't even have to be overweight or metabolically unhealthy to have a negative impact on that. Um, and I think that that's important because you've got a lot of paradigms now, particularly in the kind of intermittent fasting space, where the recommendation is to shove a, a majority of people's daily energy intake to later in the day. Um 
There's really no support for that when you go into the research. They did a study in Spain, for example, in lean, metabolically healthy women, like BMI of 22, which is, is kind of as good as it gets for research. And they and it was a well-controlled study, so they had the exact same breakfast and dinner, breakfast at 8 a.m., dinner at 8 p.m., and all they did was change the timing of their lunch, which, again, was controlled. So the exact same amount of calories and macronutrients between the two groups. One group ate their lunch at 1.30 and the other at 4.30. And in the late meal, so considering that they're eating at 4.30 and then again at 8 o'clock, so 74% of their daily energy was coming later in the day. Uh, and they ended up having decreased glucose tolerance and decreased fat oxidation, like all of these metabolic impacts in perfectly healthy, you know, lean active women that happened just because the majority of their food intake was coming later in the day. So circadian rhythms are, are really, really important to multiple aspects of our health um, from a performance perspective. You know, if you look at world records, they're mostly broken in the afternoon Strength and power output peaks between around 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. Really? Yeah. And that, that's associated with maximum core body temperature, which has a circadian rhythm as well. Um, you can overcome that effect if people train in the morning, for example, by, by doing a thorough warm up. So it ties to body temperature. Yeah. But it just really means that people who train earlier in the day will really want to raise that core temperature as much as they can. Good, good warm up being key roads. Yeah. 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 Um, just to jump across because there's a couple of so many things in yeah, there I wanted yeah. to stop and I didn't want to talk over you because people would kill me when they listen back to the episode but um, like what is then the first one I want to ask you is what is a good rhythm in terms of like I know mm. nothing is black and white and such and it's different for every individual but as a template what's a good sort of eating plan as such in an Irish climate because you talked about yeah. uh, like daylight and everything so yeah. what would be good for us so I think the first thing is that meal names shall we say like breakfast and lunch and dinner are relatively arbitrary um typically they orientate around our social day so one of the 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 things about circadian rhythms is is they'll run independent of everything else right it's the behavioral stuff that we try and superimpose on them that if they're not necessarily well synchronized together can cause issues breakfast most people eat as a function of just being up in the morning before they go to work. Yeah. You know, the workday starts at nine, therefore breakfast is at eight. You know, these things are relatively arbitrary in their concepts. So I'm focused less on hard and fast rules as far as a time goes. I think for me and being practical for people, there's two things that really come out of, of the overall field. One is a degree of time-restricted feeding. One of the interesting observations about kind of population nutrition habits at the minute is people spend up to 16 hours a day in a, in a post-fed state, which probably isn't ideal for metabolic health. So having some sort of distinct cycle of your feeding window and your fasting window, and it doesn't have to be an extended, as a lot of the kind of intermittent fasting, you know, eight-hour window. For me, being practical for people, I typically say 11 10, that's fine because you're just still giving your body a distinct cycle of okay. the feeding and the fasting period. And again, the fasting period coming when you're kind of sleeping. The second thing is be consistent with your meal timing, whatever that is. That doesn't mean you have to have an increased meal frequency, but if you eat it, so just using me as an example, I'm not a morning hungry person. I get hungry between around 10 and 11. So that's breakfast quote unquote for me yep and i'll eat again at two and i'll or, or two two three say and then i'll have 
dinner usually at about seven. So I, I'm usually kind of 10, you know, one to two or that, that window, six to seven ish as far as dinner goes. And I don't have interest from you experimenting with yourself as such. If you were to go and eat something at nine o'clock, just for whatever reason, if it was after rugby training or something, would you notice much of a difference if that was kind of completely outside of your normal routine? No, not necessarily. Um, you would notice perhaps if it was a heavy meal that it might impact on your sleep quality or the time it takes you to get to sleep if you go to sleep early after that. The reason I ended up, and I used to be a later eater, the reason I brought my kind of dinner forward somewhat was basically because I would typically go to bed earlier um, and get up earlier if I can. And so for me, if I, can, if I was having, if I was having, yeah, um, if I was having dinner at nine, but I wanted to go to bed at 10, you know, I was going to bed with a full stomach, which kind of wasn't ideal. So I brought dinner forward, but you get people that, you know, maybe for them, they hit the sack at 11 and they wake up at seven and they're fine. And if that's their bedtime, they're still getting in their, their square eight. That's okay. Um, but I think it just depends really on, on when you want to go to bed, but being consistent with your meal timing. Um, and also within that, I think the, the, the last one is have the majority of your daily energy or the bulk of your calories earlier in the day. I think that's, I think that's, that doesn't have to be in one meal, but certainly between your first meal and your second meal, I think the bulk of daily energy coming in that period is, is probably, probably better for us in the long term. So maybe in the first four or five hours of that 10, 11 yeah. hour period of eating. Yeah. It's funny you say that because myself and Rudd's today, we're going to do a podcast on it separately, but we tried to do the 10,000, basically the 10,000 calorie challenge, uh, where Rudd's <laughs> ate it from, um, more processed foods, processed foods. And I ate it from what people see as traditionally healthier foods, mm-hmm. um, mostly unprocessed single ingredient foods. And, uh, our sleep, I didn't sleep well at all. I know you slept way worse. I had sweats and nightmares. And, um, yeah. 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 The MSG. Block of cheese didn't help. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> In terms of just like one question I'd get asked a lot, um, even like a, when I do a seminar and one of the questions people would ask me all the time is, oh, I get home late. Uh, should I have a meal? What I have been saying to people is, well, if you haven't had enough food in that day, so like say for instance, if you had your two meals and mm. then you get home at nine or 10, mm. uh, I say, well, you're better off eating that meal than missing a meal. Would yeah. that be the case in, in, in this regard? Obviously, it would be optimal to do the other one. Yeah. But say, for instance, there are people out there in terms of like priority. Would the priority be make sure you hit, you know, get your actual meal and hit your mm-hmm. targets for the day? Or would it be a case of you're probably better off leaving it because it might affect you? No, I, I think when it comes to athletes, there's a degree of modification to advice that like everything I said there would be kind of more general for people and population wide advice. Um, So for, for, for the gen pop, I'm usually saying try not to try to have your dinner between say seven and eight ish roughly. If you're an athlete, you've had your two meals in the day and you've gone and had a hard strength training session or field based work. I would still say that you're better off if you're under your kind of goals for the day, you're better off eating than not eating. But typically what I would say is keep the dietary fat content to that meal at a minimum, relative minimum, lean proteins, even something as simple as having like a liquid based meal, you know, like a shake. 
easier to assimilate, easier to digest, easier to go to bed with afterwards rather than coming home and having like, you know, the roast dinner. Heavy meal, yeah. Um, so typically what I would say to people, if they are athletes and, and that is the case and they were busy or they had an evening training session and they're coming home late is lean proteins, some, some complex carbohydrates. Keep, so the reason I say keep dietary fat to a minimum, we have circadian rhythms in the fluctuations in our circulating fat. And one of it, um, one of those rhythms is that the fat that circulates in our blood will naturally have a peak in around the evening. It'll have two peaks. One's at kind of 9, 10 p.m. and the other's at 4 in the morning. If you superimpose a high fat meal on top of that, you're impairing your ability to actually clear that fat from circulation. Um, so typically, if it is a kind of 9 to 10 p.m. eating occasion, I would say to keep the dietary fat content to a minimum. It's okay. not The message there is not that fat is bad, it's that the timing of this matters. Yeah, from, from, the, circadian rhythm, yeah. Yeah, from the circadian perspective, the timing matters. Um, say, for instance, someone is looking to improve their body composition. They train in the evenings, uh, say they've done a hard session in the gym here, like a metabolic type condi- conditioning session, mm-hmm. and they go home. Would that advice be the same, even though they're yeah. not a strictly an athlete because they've trained? They've they yeah. need to put the fuel yeah. back yeah, in the it tank. Would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I say athlete, I mean in the recreational term as well, yeah. not not professional. Like, I mean, if you're engaging in any type of activity like this, strength based or metabolic work, you know, the advice still applies. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because that would be kind of what I talk about with people in the regard of because as that that question would come up a lot, and people will say, oh, "I've heard if you eat after six, you're going to store it all as fat," and all, like mm. that. That would be the kind of fear they have and then what i'd explain to them is well at the end of the day probably the most important thing is making sure you're getting enough in over the yeah, day absolutely and if you've just trained think of it like a, driving a car you've just emptied your gas tank mm-hmm. you got to put something back in the gas tank to go again so um just to kind of get some clarity on that especially for a lot of the people who yeah. train with us we have a lot of people who train in the evenings and they'd yeah. be super interested to hear yeah. your take on that it's, it's something that we've been getting for a long time with jim and it's exactly Rudd, i saw Rudd's getting worried when you were talking about uh when you were giving your advice there he was kind of going oh i've been telling people this for years but. <laughs> no no it's it, it it is absolutely if you if you train in the evening you you create that that training session is you know, an intervention in your day yeah. and it's creating, it's changing your, your metabolic state. And obviously your response to nutrient intake is going to be slightly different. Um, you're going to deplete glycogen to a degree. So that carbohydrate content in your, your meal is obviously going to go preferentially to restoring muscle glycogen. The protein will obviously go to use, you know, in terms of tissue repair. Um, so I do think that the priority for someone that maybe, you know, if we're talking about someone that had a busy day at work, yeah, yeah, they got their breakfast and they got their lunch or whatever, but you know, they're under for the day. They come here, they do a hard session. Yeah, the priority is still to have some sort of nutrient ingestion, obviously to facilitate yeah. recovery. Um, but but just I think for the practical side of it, um, keep it to something that would be relatively lean proteins and, and carb based it's a good rough framework because I would I, I would always live off yeah. that principle of if I've trained later uh, or gone for a run or done something I will have what I think is a traditionally good recovery meal yeah. and I would definitely include some portion of saturated and unsaturated fat in that Yeah, uh, and that's definitely going to have my mind thinking about doing that the next time I'm eating later in the evening because yeah. um, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to eat if I know I've trained yeah. um, but it, it definitely makes sense as well in terms of sleep quality yeah, for sure definitely and, and if someone if it is very late like if it's talking about 
someone getting home at 10 p.m. Like typically, I would say go go for the liquid meal option. Yeah, you know, don't don't put don't put something really he- you know kind of whole foods in and and be digesting that kind of up to you know later in the in the in the actual biological night. Yeah, well, and, sorry, Rose, because there's another really interesting thing you said there as well. Was you were talking about the with with light in Ireland, like you know, it being look look at what we've got now. Yeah. It's, bright, it's bright at a like a quarter past four in the morning, nearly, yeah. and it's going it's, till nearly quarter it's to fantastic. eleven. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, um, I can see your tan is benefiting from it. <laughs> but um, like, what would good strategies be then for people during the winter? Um, so for the winter, I typically recommend um a, a blue light box. Uh, you can get Philips, for example. It, they're literally about the size of the palm of your hand. Okay. Um, Philips do a good range of boxes of 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 light boxes that you can just switch on in the morning, and it will emit the exact intensity of light that would that would literally you would see on a on a blue sky day. The reason for that is that people, when they hear the whole light thing, they think, "But sure, I'm sitting in a room now, and it's, <laughs> it's lit up." It's like the, the light part of this is really interesting because it's really to do with specific wavelengths and intensity of light. And that's what we respond to. And so if you look at, you know, average office lighting, the, just as an example for, for listeners, the minimum intensity of light that we need for this kind of entrainment of our circadian rhythms is around a thousand lux. Lux is just a, a measurement of light. Average office lighting can be 500 or less, even though the place seems bright. You're not getting that threshold that's needed to actually signal daytime. So in the winter months in particular, um, if someone isn't able to get outdoor light exposure early in the day, I typically just recommend that they go onto Amazon and get one of these like the Philips Go Light Blue or something like that and just use that for 30 minutes in the morning. You don't have to stare into it. You can put it on next to your laptop. Your eyes will pick up on the light. Um, and that is, you, you notice a difference. It's it's like having morning coffee. You okay. really do notice. Light is physiologically arousing to, to humans. So you do really do notice a, a, a peak in your energy levels and 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 your kind of your, your mental function after 30 minutes of a blue light exposure particularly i'm just, I'm just looking around the gym here thinking where we're going to put a few for early <laughs> yeah. morning sessions because we see it so much in the difference in yeah. in the winter and the difference in the summer like i know everyone says it's easier to get up in the morning because it's brighter yeah. but that's physiologically that's true absolutely yeah, true <laughs> that, that's factual so like yeah. something like that in the winter for sure like is definitely i i can't imagine how it's not going to help people's performance and just yeah. in general help mood help them have a better day yeah uh, and have a big impact on their life it has a big impact on mood the scandinavians are all over this stuff because i Obviously, it's they're all over everything. Though, to be fair, they they are, but the, in particular, they jumped on the light stuff early because you know of how dark it is in their winters, and yeah. like how little daytime light they have. So these 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 are very popular there. The other thing I'll, uh, I think is worth saying for people in terms of this whole light thing is well and good to get that light exposure in the early part of the day, particularly in the summer or in the winter using a blue light box. But where where people I think need to start paying more attention to is the exposure to artificial light at night and it's really hard to sell this for people because they're just like shut up i want to watch netflix but you know the research is there you know it's it's have you got anything because i know exactly what you're saying and we've talked about the podcast before we talk about like what are you talking in terms of impact on performance or like you're talking course well, one you're talking about completely offsetting your circadian rhythm because you're sitting there at 9 p.m 
you might know it's dark outside in your head, but it's 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 these these responses are dictated to for us and the light exposure is signaling it's daytime it's daytime it's daytime so when you go to bed there hasn't been a switch in those underlying functions there is an arousal level that obviously results from light exposure so the biggest issue that really results from this is impaired sleep quality and that's feeding into performance and recovery what i typically find is that people particularly in the winter months will say but I sleep eight hours a night and I'm knackered in the morning. And it's like, well, of course you're knackered. You go to bed having had all of this exposure right up to the moment where you turn off your phone and turn off the lights in your room. So it's only when you enter that dark environment that your body starts thinking, right, well, it's dark now, but that could be 11 p.m. So you're you're offsetting your rhythm. And what people have usually experienced as the extreme version of this is jet lag. But there's a term coming out in the research now called social jet lag. And that's basically where you're, you haven't traveled, but you're, you, there's a disconnect between your sleep timing and how much you would sleep if you weren't had a, you know, with an, a, an enforced wake time in the morning. And the biggest difference that, that, that people notice when they start paying attention to their light environment is getting to sleep quicker and having better sleep quality, more restful sleep. So if, if they're not sold on improving sleep, you know, particularly from a performance standpoint, um, you know, it's, 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 it is really important. Um, and the, the, the simplest thing to do is just dim, dim light rooms, soft side lighting. You can go to the extreme and, and get glasses that will block blue light. Um, that's where I go to, but people, you know, are a bit funny about that. The other option is on the more moderate side, just have a TV slash tech curfew. You yeah. know, have the electronic devices off certainly an hour before your planned bedtime read a book (laughs) like that's kind of something that Roy said uh, we've talked about a lot and it's amazing to get that kind of um background on it the the idea i talk to people about is when you're a kid you have a bedtime routine and that's how you get to sleep Mm -hmm. but someone else is in charge of that and then when we become adults we get put in charge of our own bedtime routines Mm -hmm. and then people something else is always more important and we let it eat into that. So what I say to people is you can't control the quality of sleep. Like trying to sleep better doesn't work. Yeah. But, yeah. Know, I'll just close my eyes really yeah, hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, count, I'll count yeah. sheep and you lay awake all night. Or yeah. even that idea of like, oh, I got seven hours sleep, but how do you feel in the morning? If you didn't bounce out of bed, you probably didn't get the quality yeah. you need. Exactly. So just trying to get in that idea of like taking ownership of it, mm-hmm. like, I'm now my own parent. I'm the one who's in charge of my bedtime. That's terrifying. Yeah. 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 But that's the reality of it. And I've got to just do this. I've got to build a routine where I turn, like you said, curfew, phone, TV goes off. I put in place of it, reading, meditation, talking to my, you know, like talking to my better half or whatever it is. These sorts of things. Because like, if you look at the research behind meditation, meditation is mm-hmm. one of the most powerful things in terms of stress relief. And yeah. everyone in this world and is more free. stressed than they, sh- they should be. Just to add to that, it doesn't have to be strict old school type no. meditation. It can be exactly something where you're just talking or you're switching yeah. off. You can find out what works for you. The other thing is we live in a world where we spend so much time on phones and mm-hmm. that social connection. But it's not the same as the social connection we're having talking to each other mm-hmm. now. Um, and then the other thing is we live in a world where everything is like instant. So I go on a phone, Instagram, 
I I don't finish reading a full blog because I can't. You know, I yeah. Mean, that that's what we're conditioning ourselves to now. Yeah. If you think of that curfew for improving your sleep, but also that curfew in terms of skills that are being lost. So the ability to sit down and have a proper conversation. Mm-hmm. How was your day? What happened? You're gaining that back now by taking out the TV and the phone. You're also gaining the skill of meditation, maybe, and the benefits of that in terms yeah. of mental clarity and performance. Or maybe you're reading a book. You're now bringing back the skill of being able to in, get in depth in the topic and actually concentrate and improve yeah. your mind as opposed to just scrolling, scrolling yeah. flicking yeah. back and forth. So obviously there's a sleep benefits, but also your, no, there's a life benefit. The, the, your li- you're kind of practicing these life skills that TV and phones get in yeah. the way of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And kind of last thing on that before we move on to fats, which Rudd's going to get to, we're speaking of social skills, uh, Rudd's a stag, we're flying out this afternoon to uh, to Swansea, there's going to be, I don't know if there'll be good or bad social skills on display at that stage, Rudd's, but uh, like there's no jet lag going to Swansea, but you're talking about jet lag and then obviously yeah. social jet lag as another thing, which is a very interesting concept that probably for another podcast to really flesh that out, but um, I saw somewhere you're talking about strategies, how to negate jet lag in advance or afterwards, oh, yeah. like that. that's something, the reason I'm asking about this is we get a lot of people in the gym who travel at work uh, and they're coming back and they're jet lagged, but it might take them what should take maybe a day or two or maybe three to recover from but get back into routine, mm-hmm. it's a week or could nearly be eight, nine days yeah. by the time they actually feel right again. What's good advice for those people? Yeah, so the the problem with that is when most people travel, irrespective of, of the distance they're going, but particularly if they are crossing, say, anything over four hours of a time zone, yep. Um, What's what time is it in Swansea? It's probably <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't even have clocks over there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Happy hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, the um, people just treat the journey like you know, like they would any other kind of day or evening activity. So they stay up, they watch movies, they don't pay attention to the time it is, they eat food whenever it's available on the plane. To, to really phase advance or delay and, and get over jet lag in anticipation of it, um, you need to be factoring in where you're going, what time it is, what the difference is. And you need to be operating in terms of your sleep schedule and your eating as if you were kind of at that time zone. Now you can do, it depends on how long the trip is. If people are just doing a two day trip, Reality is you'd want to keep yourself closer to Irish time, yeah. say, for example, than you would where you're going. Um, but the, 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 the best thing to do would be to maintain your timing of kind of food intake roughly around what it would be here. So, you know, keeping your phone on Irish time or keeping a watch on Irish time. So if you're on the plane on the way back and it's a, a four hour, five hour, you know, eight hour plane rider, you were in New York. And, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning and they're serving food on the plane. It's like, treat that as one o'clock in the morning. One, you should try and be sleeping on the plane as yeah. much as you can. So so stick to a sleep schedule that roughly overlaps with where you're, if you're coming back to Ireland um, and try and try and sleep in advance of that and use one of the masks, you yeah. know, that they'll bring, bring a sleep mask just to be able to like block out all the light on the plane, sleep over an Irish night and keep your meal timing consistent with 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 your Irish meal timing. And the reason I find that so interesting is I'm just back from my honeymoon on Monday. Um, got married last month, and we went away to Portugal for the honeymoon. We were in Lisbon for a week and Madeira for a week. And I've never come back from a holiday uh, like a two week holiday fresher. Like yeah. I was in, I got in at maybe 
half two, three o'clock on Sunday night, very late, and I was in here at nine o'clock in the morning training with the guys. But like, I honestly felt a million. Maybe I was just bored after two two weeks. Of my <laughs> even, but I I came in, I felt a million bucks. I wasn't yeah. knackered by four o'clock. I didn't need a nap, and it's obviously because I'm on the exact same time yeah, the zone same in time Portugal. Time. Yeah, the eating was same. Everything was the same. I did a a trip to Australia in March um, for a mate's wedding, and I was only there for ten days, and I didn't want to be knackered for the whole time. So I, I started two, two days before I went out. I started shifting my meal timing, um, using my blue light box in the evening here, um, using the glasses in the morning and, and slowly kind of phased that. And then for the journey itself, I completely shifted everything onto Aussie time. Okay. So I fasted for 24 hours and then started eating at a time that corresponded with say 8, 8, 9 a.m. in Australia. Um, and slept on the flight here from here to Dubai, even though it was, 11 in the morning and I but I'd stayed up later that night so I was tired going to the airport wore the blue light blockers took a melatonin slept because it was it was 11 p.m in Australia everything I changed my watch I changed everything was on to Australia very easy miss a flight operating that way Uh, yeah (laughs) um but that was it I got to Australia uh by the time because I'd stayed up all the way from the Dubai leg to Sydney that was 14 hours got there landed a half nine tired enough Went straight to bed, slept, woke up at 8 a.m., no jet lag for the trip, yeah. and did the mm-hmm. same on the way back. So worth it. It's yeah. so worth it. I think, I honestly think we could talk about the circadian rhythm in yeah. more detail for, for ages, but we were kind of getting into some of the other topics of what we're looking to get rid In terms of when I was doing the research um, for, for having you in, I was reading mm. some of your stuff in terms of saturated fat, and it's something I'd love to touch on yeah. with you. Um, in terms of, first of all, like what is saturated saturated fats role in optimal health and performance yeah yeah so there's there's been this kind of real movement um it started in 2010 with a particular paper that was published saying that oh we we were wrong there was no association between saturated fat and heart disease which has traditionally been the focus of of saturated fat in public health and in research um and it's gathered a lot of momentum um um I, I, I'm not sure why. I think people like to be told that the kind of foods that they want to eat, they can, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, go ahead and put butter in your coffee and cheeseburgers are fine. Just don't eat the bun. Uh, and this kind of narrative that's developed because part of this movement is very much sat, sat fats were fine. It's all carbs. So once you ditch the carbs, you can you can pour sat fat onto your heart's content. What we're talking about between saturated versus unsaturated really is a, it's a chemical term. And all saturated means is that, you know, uh, that, that the particular type of fat has a particular chemical structure. Mm. That is typically found in animal fats for the most part. You can get some saturated fats from plant sources. Coconut would be an example of that. And again, People are putting coconut oil and everything from yeah. their skin to their hair. So, so this is, and, and, and then unsaturated fats simply, um, are, you know, chemically structurally different, but they would be the kind of fats that we would associate with the Mediterranean diet, olive oil, nuts, seeds, and fish and oily fish in particular. Um, there's, there's, there's one thing that seems to be very much, um, you know, driving this kind of movement. And it's the suggestion that, well, public health advice in the 70s and 80s started recommending people consume lower fat diets. That's true. They did. But they also 
you know, recommended people consume less sugar and more vegetables and eat more vegetables and eat more fruit and eat more fiber. And this was in the 70s. So public health advice on the nutrition front really hasn't changed that much. Uh, And it wasn't wrong back then. They're just latching on to this one thing. We fast forward to now. The advice to reduce total fat intake is 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 accepted as no longer being correct you can have a diet that's higher in your total fat content uh, and still be healthy and and benefit performance to a degree but we know now that the composition of fats within that is important and higher total fat diets that are still good for people are higher in predominantly unsaturated fats again your fish olive oil nuts etc this idea that higher total fat diets can increase total saturated fat content really isn't supported anywhere. And typically people have looked at this through the realm of cardiovascular disease as if that's where it's only applicable. But we actually see this across the board. This balance of fat types between saturated and unsaturated is evident everywhere. I mean, if we look at neurological health and neurodegenerative disease, categorically the fats that are most important for brain health are polyunsaturated fats that are found in in oily fish in particular high saturated fat content distinctly associated with dementia and alzheimer's if we look at diabetes and so if we're talking more in the kind of performance kind of realm now the content of fat in your diet influences your insulin sensitivity and, and your response to carbohydrate intake so higher total saturated fat intake significantly negatively impacts on your glucose tolerance um there's some recent interesting research uh looking at the effects of the balance of fats in terms of body composition really interesting paper came out last year followed up by another one recently where a greater level of polyunsaturated fat intake was associated with less visceral fat and abdominal fat accumulation and more lean mass um, again, higher saturated fat content typically associated with more visceral and abdominal fat accumulation. And, and so the balance of fat subtypes is important for body composition and performance uh, as much as it's important for heart health. Yeah. And this narrative is really problematic because it ties into this demonization of carbohydrates. And the one thing that I, that, that I think is really important for people in the performance realm to know there's a lot of populist opinion and people that are just like, oh, well, I'm, you know, full-blown ketogenic, but I can still, you know, deadlift and blah, blah, blah. It's like they might be a special snowflake, but there is zero actual evidence to support that a high-fat, low-carb diet in any way benefits strength and power-based sports at all. And whatever about strength and power-based sports, they don't even seem to benefit the kind of sports you think that that type of diet might help for, yeah. like endurance. Um, Louise Burke, the Australian Institute of Sports, a phenomenal sports nutrition researcher, did a study with Olympic walkers in the run-up to the, um, not the, yeah, the London Games to 2012. Again, on this idea that maybe a high-fat, low-carb diet benefits people in that kind of aerobic intensity range. Yeah. Um, Which and they have them on a key. Yeah, it, it, it technically makes sense. And that's the argument that's always put forward for it. They did four weeks on a ketogenic diet and their performance tanked. <laughs> and part of the reason that it tanked is because the creation of energy in that metabolic state is quite costly and it's quite an awkward process. 
remembering that this switch into using ketones for energy is a survival adaptation for when humans are starving. So how, I, I fail to see even at the level of logic how that uh, survival mechanism that kicks in relates to peak performance and it doesn't. And what the, what they, what they attributed the, the decrease in performance to was that it impaired their exercise economy. They became really inefficient actually at, at using oxygen. Um, and so really the, the, the populist notions about, you know, and you, you'll get the odd person saying, well, I'm, I'm ketogenic, but I can still do this, that and the other. And it's like, I will always default to the research and I don't care what, you know, an Instagram hero that claims that they're able to have high levels of performance on a ketogenic diet says it's nowhere in the literature. I, I think the thing on that is probably just the, it's the emotional side that's tied into the, the change yeah. within their diet. So like we see a lot of the time and it's not necessarily a bad thing in such unless you're coming from a point where people are preaching that this is the only way to do things it's mm. like anything there's a bell curve the truth's going to lie in the middle yeah more often than not but there is certain people who because they've been very strict on if it's a ketogenic diet for example that might just be the first time that they've really committed to something for a long period of time it's allowed consistency mm. within their diet and their training that facilitates performance improvements that they wouldn't yeah. have got from jumping from diet x to diet y yeah. or whatever it is and we do see that a lot and um, i think the vegan diet's a great example of it uh, like i've had a lot of people who said they've lost a huge amount of weight since they're vegan their body fat's lower and i'm saying like in certain scenarios i know from certain people i've worked with it's because there's not necessarily crisps and yeah. you know, chocolate yeah, as, as whole, part of that vegan diet food groups go out the window and they yeah. suddenly are eating loads of vegetables and loads of pulses and legumes and beans and it's like you've just gone from eating and that happens to a lot of people that go low carb as well you know they go from eating your standard western diet of like cheerios and tropicana for breakfast and then just the sandwich for lunch and whatever and the, the pasta for dinner and suddenly those foods, when they decide to go on a low-carb diet, are, are not available yeah. to them. And they start eating eggs and spinach for breakfast and chicken and, you know, some some more veg. for. And so they're, they're, they're suddenly eating loads of non-starchy veg and lean proteins and healthy fats. And, and, and they think the magic bullet is the absence of carbohydrates. And they don't realize that they've actually just Improved made quality, significant massive, dietary yeah. quality improvements. And... And, 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 you know, and it's, 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 it's true across the board. Um, I think with, I think with the fat thing in particular, it's important to stress that even within the literature on ketogenic diets, this whole balance of fat subtypes, it's, 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 it's not a secret. Like the ketogenic diets that, you know, are used in research, they might have 70% fat, but the majority of that is still unsaturated fats. Well, so. When you're talking balance, have you got a ratio or something that you operate off? What way do you... Um, so ratios, I think, yes, but a ratio is often unhelpful for people in, you know, because people eat food, not ratios. Yeah. So it's so, so I, I, I'm... And, and this is where I think public health nutrition advice is lacking. I think we need to be making food-based recommendations to people. Yeah. So rather than give ratios, I may, I always try and come back to food-based recommendations. So if you consume animal produce, then some saturated fat intake as a byproduct of that intake is going to be okay. You know, you have red meat, like beef or lamb or pork a couple of times a week. That's absolutely fine. Um, and we'll talk about dairy, obviously, because that is it's one of the, the nuances and it's, it's different. Yeah. Um, but whole milk dairy produce is fine. Um but predominantly, you want the majority of your fat intake to be coming from 
Plant oils, olive and rapeseed oil seem to be two that have particular health benefits. Nuts or nut butters, oily fish three times a week certainly seems to be the threshold for for long-term brain health as well. Um, And seeds, you know, sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds. And and if that's the majority of your fat intake, then the saturated fat intake that comes as a byproduct of your animal intake is is fine. You'll you'll achieve that balance that, that we're talking about. With regards to um, saturated fat, uh, like in terms of, like you're saying, having uh, red meat a few times a week, mm-hmm. and is a in terms of hormone health with regards to testosterone, is there something in that in regards yeah, to... Yeah, there, there, this, there's this kind of idea, you know, myth that's come out as... I think Tim Ferriss is actually to blame for this, to be honest. This idea that saturated fat ties to testosterone production... It actually doesn't really, but your total fat content does. So what I typically say, now that we've gotten over the whole people need to need lower total fat and we don't, typically what I would say is just make sure that your fat intake actually isn't too low. But it's your total fat intake that really is is the issue for for hormone production, not specifically saturated fat. And we don't need a lot of saturated fat in our diet. But I think in our type of diet, you're going to pick it up naturally. It's exactly like you said. Most people are, if you're eating meat, if you're consuming, you know, animal, like eggs, whatever it might be, which which kind of leads us on to dairy as well then. Mm. Um, Like I know you have some specific thoughts about dairy. Do you want to share those with us? Well, I I just think that it's, it's been a really maligned food group in, in the last while. Uh, we have this kind of surge of interest amongst everybody now about, about health and nutrition, right? Um, and dairy is one of these food groups that has been attacked from all sides, uh, kind of on the extreme plant-based side and some of the more militant uh, circles of veganism. You know, you get posts about it containing pus and you know, it's, it's, it's a cow's milk. We're not designed to eat other cow, you know, animals' milks. It's like, well, if that's the logic that we're applying, then by that same thought process, humans should only be eating other humans. I mean, yeah. that idea is just ridiculous. But it's, it's also this idea that everyone's intolerant to it, you know, um, that's fairly farcical. Um, one of the things, if you look at this, alleged increasing there is no doubt that there is an increasing prevalence of allergy and intolerance to food but people are blaming food actually if you look at that whole area of kind of research like the microbiome our gut bacteria composition it's really important for how our immune system sensitizes to food which is why early life stage variables like breastfeeding and delivery method are really important and that's why weaning children onto solids while breastfeeding is probably the best way to maintain or reduce their risk of having any sensitivities to food. But our generation, for the most part, there's a huge prevalence of C-section deliveries. People weren't breastfed for particularly long durations or were, in many cases, certainly in Ireland in the 80s, recommended to go straight onto formula after a few weeks of feeding. Um, so we have pretty poorly calibrated immune systems. The composition of our gut bacteria likely isn't necessarily um, you know, the best for that. And people are responding to food intake, but it's not a reflection of the food. It's more a reflection of their actual host health. Um, and dairy has, has fallen kind of into this category of foods that everyone is convinced they're intolerant to. Um, and I, I'm not convinced that that's the case at all. And then you've got really the, 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 the more, you know, scaremongering about it as a food group. Um, 
And that really doesn't have any, I think if we're objective about it and we step back one, it's one of the most nutritionally complete foods mm. that we have available to us. If you look at, you know, the, the carton, the nutritional uh, information on a carton of whole milk, it's essentially equally balanced protein, carbohydrates and fat. The fat content in dairy, in whole milk dairy is really interesting because and when I say whole milk dairy, I mean whole milks, yogurts and cheeses. Um, the fat content in it, even though it is saturated, is slightly different because even within a, a, a classification of a fat, you'll have different lengths of them. And the fats in dairy are short chain fatty acids and they behave a bit differently. Um, and the fat is also in this kind of membrane. It's enscapulated and that membrane has this impact on how the liver produces cholesterol. So you actually get beneficial impacts on your blood cholesterol levels from consuming cheese or whole milk or yogurt. They've done some really interesting research comparing the exact same weight of an amount of cheese to butter. Because butter, people, butter is a craze at the minute. Yeah. But butter is a refined food. It's, it's the process of, you know, removing the, the milk fat membrane and removing the other pro, you know, and then solidifying it. So you remove all of those other processes and churning the cream out of it and the milk fats removed. Um, and butter compared to cheese will drive up someone's LDL cholesterol levels when the cheese won't, even though they have the same saturated fat content. So even within dairy, not all dairy is created equal, so to speak, <laughs> in this sense. And this movement that people have now towards like butter being this panacea of health. Um, no, you know, there's moderate amounts of butter are fine, but like it shouldn't be something that people are putting two teaspoons in their coffee of. It's funny you talk about that because actually there's someone who trains in the gym here, Emma, and she, this is her area of research. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so she's been doing this since she joined the gym, say, maybe three, four years yeah, ago. Is she in UCD by any chance? UCD, yeah. yeah so UCD are doing yeah. some great research in this in this area. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing it coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like hearing you talk about that is exactly what um, she's been doing. And like hearing her conversations three, four years ago, talking about that. And she's so passionate about yeah. cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheese is good for you. We were at a Food Fighters <laughs> concert a few years ago and everyone was like having a few drinks and enjoying themselves and i got to talking with it and then we started talking about cheese for like an hour and someone came over and looked at us and was like, like what are you, you doing are mental. Yeah. <laughs> but it was super interesting um but just but, but still on that sorry because like just in terms of the social kind of function and thinking about dairy like i've had one or two uh i'm one of the guys he's regular listener i know he's going to hear this but uh like heated arguments about this like basically p- people come in with the it's like you said it's like some people look at it and say we're the only kind of mammal that consumes the milk of another mammal yeah and that's uh, why we're humans yeah and we're here uh, well, well i said it's the, the opposable, opposable thumbs is kind yeah. of why we can do that <laughs> yeah that's why other mammals can't if they had the option they might but it's exactly like you said it if you look at it it is probably one of the most complete food sources that we can have if you look yeah. at even the micronutrient nutrient and the mineral content of it the argument that someone can use well spinach has just as much calcium i'm like Mm, that's her. actually nonsense yeah because you're eating how many bags of spinach yeah. versus a pint yeah. of milk it's like it's not it's not practical yeah um, but it's something i just think people 
Like there's so few foods and we kind of say it the whole time is that there's no good foods or bad foods. They just, they tie into your diet as a whole. And when people look at it, they, they just want to say dairy is bad. There is, what I do is better. Or, yeah, you know. yeah. And I, I think, yeah, there's there, there's a pushback now against, um, you know, there's a lot of ethical and moral issues in relation to animal consumption. And I think that part of the problem, and I've, I've had a conversation about this with a friend of mine in London who's a vegan nutritionist based there. And the problem with the more militant sects of, of veganism is that they're detracting from the conversations that we need to be having about sustainability and stuff like that. Yeah. They created a, a, a default presumption that if you consume animals, you endorse a system of cruelty and uh, and I don't buy that. I think you can be a conscious carnivore and it's how I would describe myself. And I think that if we do choose to consume animals, we can still and should still consider, you know, the source and consider issues like sustainability and, you know, industry variables um, that, that, that do, you know, animal welfare is important. For sure. Um, and, you know, but that idea that, you know, we'll just dismiss the entire food group because there's some issues around, you know, either industry and production or the myths about its actual, you know, value. It's, oh, it's riddled with antibiotics and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's, it's not. And the, it's, it is important to qualify this because, there's a movement now and there's a big concern in public health nutrition about parents defaulting their children onto plant milk alternatives. They're, they're not milks. They're not nutritionally comparable. Like if you look at the actual ingredient list, you might have 2% almonds in an almond milk and the rest is just additives and water. And mm. um, they have nothing. Typically we talk about milk. You mentioned calcium, you know, one, there's a myth that came out of no, I don't know where it came from that, Oh, well, green vegetables have more calcium. And as you said, you'd need to eat the plant. Yeah. Um, but secondly, there's this idea that, oh, well, actually the calcium in milk isn't that bioavailable. That's nonsense as well. Um, and when we were talking about the impact of cheese versus, say, butter on cholesterol levels, part of that is to do with the calcium content of that. So it's really part of dairy's benefit is the calcium content, not just in terms of bone health, but creating these kind of soaps in, in the gut that prevent a degree of fatty acid absorption. The other thing as well, though, is that dairy contains things like iodine and phosphorus and micronutrients that are really important that we don't even talk about. Um, there's some really interesting research using milk as a hydration tool and it's, and it outperforms, you know, a leucosate sport or a, a formulated isotonic sports drink. Um, like if I, for example, I wouldn't if fancy I'm, going, uh, back into a match after a pint of milk at halftime though. No, but that's, I mean, my strategy for say rehydrating after a weigh in, the first thing I down is one of those Avonmore, you know, vanilla protein milks yeah. um and then down a leucocyte sport but it's just you're getting food in i mean it is a liquid food yeah. so the other thing as well to remember is that we do grow up in a in a very heavily dairy centric society yes so there's a difference between spending your whole life eating like milk and bread and milk and bread and then people get to their kind of adulthood and go i think i'm really intolerant to dairy and gluten and it's like well i think you should just maybe not eat a half slice pan a day <laughs> and you'll be fine with the hot sandwich i think that's probably like the biggest point with dairy so like what i found with, through my experience of coaching people is most people do quite well with dairy there's some people who don't and mm -hmm. then it's like the skin being a big one and mm -hmm. so and i'm just like take it out for two weeks see they take it out for two weeks 
noticed significant improvements. Okay, we might be on something. Put it back in. Same things happen. Okay, you're. But I found through doing that with people, they're actually in the minority of the people yes. I've coached yes. more than the majority. There's way more people who actually go. Oh, I didn't actually feel a difference. There's more kind of psychological. Yeah, it's psychological. Um, and then, but the thing we find is the the portion sizes with dairy so if you think of again you're talking about we actually eat foods so if you think of a meal that's typically consumed with dairy if you have say for instance like a pizza even a homemade pizza mm. with whole foods uh, where you put it on like a wrap base people tend to like myself before i knew about a lot of this stuff i put a load of cheese on that <laughs> or uh, a lot of these other meals where you've got dairy you just have like a sauce like a cream based sauce you just have loads of it so so much yeah. calories so much fat content yeah. if you think of eating a comparable amount of fat from other sources like an avocado or anything like that you wouldn't eat that much in one meal no so i think no. that's a huge thing so i talk about with people the idea of having two thumbs for males and one thumb for females of mm. like cheese as a portion size and yeah. starting to become aware and mindful of like right what is this portion size yeah. and when you start to do that i find that's a really good way to start um having dairy in your diet mm. and ha- not detracting from what you're trying to do yeah. actually yeah. adding and i think with 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 cheese as well it's just one of these foods where people don't have an off switch for yeah, uh, good. So, you know, so, you know, you, you go to have the slice and you end up having the block. Um, and so, yeah, being mindful of portion sizes, you know, not again, moving away from this idea that like, you know, you drink a pint, you know, a, a pint or a liter of milk. Some people are literally consuming that much, certainly yeah. when they're growing up and stuff. And like, you know, yogurt, certainly I, I would be a big fan of recommending kind of non-fat Greek yogurts to people. Again, not, not that the fat content's a problem, but they tend to be the ones that are higher in protein. So as a way of just boosting daily protein yeah, yeah. totals, usually a big fan of of that food. It's a great snack food. Um, and again, even the subtleties of it, some people find that yogurt's fine. They may, they may you know, not necessarily feel like they respond that well to milk, but they're okay with yogurt. So I guess my point with dairy is don't write off the whole food group. You know, there are nuances in it. Should you be more moderate with butter intake? Yeah, absolutely. You know, should you be mindful of portion sizes with cheese? Absolutely. You know, but, you know, using certainly yogurt and milk as part of the overall balanced approach, it's an incredibly nutritionally dense food group. So I think once someone doesn't have any ethical or moral issues with it, um, which they're perfectly entitled to do, there's no real evidence-based reason to exclude it for health reasons. I think that's the best advice one is just try exactly like Rudd's is saying, take it out for two weeks, put it back in. If you you don't try it again, then it's just different ways to experiment in your own body, not waiting for the allergy test that you have to get and you can never get booked or try it yourself, experiment with the foods you're a bit skeptical about and Mm. you should get to the bottom of it. Before we get into the the fitness forfeit quiz, which we've themed slightly uh, for you, to be honest with you, so uh, I'm kind of hoping Rudd's loses. But uh, just from, like I said, I start looking at your, your Instagram and stuff with your powerlifting, like, you're an incredibly busy guy, legal practice, study, nutrition, coaching business, you know, competitive powerlifting. Give us what the one key thing is to manage your time to allow you to do all that. Um, the, what the key thing is to manage time, you know, I'm, I'm fairly kind of ruthless with like planning my day, but there's two things that for me 
are are kind of the, the the key cornerstone of all of this. One is I am mental about sleep. <laughs> like I I do everything that could possibly be done to make sure that I get the best sleep possible. Because if I'm if if I've slept and if I'm rested, I can attack the day. The second thing is, and it's an extension of sleep in a way. I'll put my phone on airplane mode before I go to bed at night. And I leave the first two hours of my day is a sanctuary. I don't turn on my phone on average till about nine in the morning. And I kind of tend to wake at about half six ish, get up. I'm a big believer in a morning routine. So I'll get out of bed. I'll meditate for 15 minutes, stretch, make coffee, read for 15 minutes. And then I kind of feel like, right, my body's ready. My mind's ready. And then that first 90 minutes of my day is a block of time where whatever I have that's important to work on, whether it's doing some research or writing an article or taking care of some paperwork for, for, for law stuff or whatever it is, yeah. that's that block. And you get so much done in that time frame. Like there's no social media, there's no communication with the outside world. Um, and that's that even, even if the rest of your day becomes full of distractions and errands and stuff like that, just even having that two hours. You know you're well set. And if you're doing that every day, it just, it adds up, you know? Um, and, and that was it. Like, you know, with my dissertation, even for example, like I, I had a case running for the whole week that I was trying to do most of the writing for it. Um, that 90 minutes or two hours that I was getting in every single morning before going into work was, was, was what added up over the course of it's the week. It's a full week. day. It's a full day's done. work. It's a 10 hour day. It's amazing how much you can get done when, when you're not distracted and you have dedicated that time block to whatever your, your most important task is for that day. And that's, that's, that's really what it adds up over time. Very similar as well, Ben Coomer, when he was over doing a talk um February, uh, like uh, you're a guy crazy about his sleep, like nothing would get in the way of interrupting his sleep routine and his, his morning routine. So there's clearly a bit of benefit to it. So for today's quiz, uh, have you seen many of these go wrong for anybody yet, Alan? Or, uh, I'm due. I still have to do my singing one when the episode comes out for Tzvava next week. Run, so that's going to be terrible. But uh, basically what we've got, Dara's going to step in as our quiz master, uh, Lansdowne rugby themed quiz as uh, Rudd's dad, Big Mike, right. uh, former guest on the pod, friend of the pod, uh, is head coach at Lansdowne and you're currently doing a bit of training down there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the forfeit is going to be the Ben Bruno 50 rep front squat challenge. It's uh, your body weight on the bar. What are you weighing in at? 86 at the minute. And yeah. Rudds? 108. Okay, very good. Turn your phone off, Rudds. We're not listening to what I'm saying there. Uh, you got to perform 50 reps in five minutes. Right. At body weight. Fair, straightforward enough. Clock starts when you're at the bar, ends when you get it done, uh, post it on social media and tag the other person. Hoover, over to you. Over to me. How are you, Flan? Good, dude. How are you? All good, all good. So, Land's End Team Quiz. Right. First one to you, Flano. And may the best winner win. <laughs> How many All Ireland Division One A titles does Lanzo have? In total? Total. Three. Yes, three. 2013, 15, and just the year just gone, 2018. Yeah. Rudds, what year was Lanzo founded? Eighteen eleven. Nah. No, eight, 1872. 1872. <laughs> Did we play rugby? <laughs> yeah, I think so. This will be interesting if you get this one now. The initials uh, of Lansdowne is LFC, compared to most clubs being 
or FC after their first. Mm-hmm. Why is this? Because it's Lansdowne Football Club. But there's a specific reason why it's a football club. I'll give you another example compared to Mary's RFC. So it's LFC versus yeah. MRFC. Oh, why is it? Why is it? Why is there club no rugby football club? Yep. Um, I know I got an explanation for this before. It's to do with the timing of its founding as well. Yeah, you'd be um, right. Um, We've a stag to go to. <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it? Push for time. Yeah, okay. Three, I, 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 two, I, I, one. It's to do with the founding. Yeah, yeah. so 1872, two. Lansdowne was founded, yeah. and then the IRFU was founded in 1874. So they oh, titled it Football yeah. Club versus Rugby Football Club. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rhodes, who founded Lansdowne? Your dad. Uh, Mike Willock. <laughs> 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 uh, he wasn't alive, but Mick Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> no, Henry Rutherford. Right? Henry Dunlap. Oh, D- Henry Dunlap. Uh, yeah. Uh, which Lansdowne man was the only Irish person to represent Ireland internationally before and after World War Two? Um, Lansdowne person to represent Ireland before and after World War II um, 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 um. <laughs> let me think if in doubt Mike Ruddock yeah no Michael Dunn was too early um, push for time again three uh, two I'm gonna go with Ned Lightfoot one center. no Con Murphy ah okay. for the definitely draw. wouldn't have got that yeah uh, how many British and Irish lines have Lansdowne supplied, Rods? 11. 14. Oh. Unfortunately. So, Ben Bruno for you, Rods. And Flano escapes with nothing. <laughs> I kind of look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Flano, thanks again so, for coming in and doing the episode with us. Um, thanks I know we're a crazy busy time for you. Just what's the best way for people to find some more information on you if they're interested in your, your stuff and your research? Right now, actually, it's just Instagram. Um, but I have a new site up and running. Uh, or, sorry, not up and running. It will be up and running by the end of July. So, but if they're if they follow me on Instagram, they'll 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 know when that comes out. Fantastic. We'll share all the links. Thanks again for that. Excellent. Thanks Have a good day. Thanks, Thanks, lads. Well,